hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Healthy Christian Project. In this episode, we're going to be tackling quite a difficult chapter of Genesis, which is Genesis 38. If you've never read this this chapter before, upon first glance, it might be something that makes you uncomfortable or perhaps is a little bit off-putting. So let me just give you a summary of the chapter. In Genesis 38, it's it's in the middle of Joseph's narrative. So if you don't know Joseph from Genesis, he's the one who his brothers sold um, and he went into Egypt and he he was living with Potiphar and then his wife, Potiphar's wife accused him of, of trying to have sex with her and then he went off to jail and then he became like prime minister of Egypt right under Pharaoh and lived a really cool life um, and he brought his whole family into, Israel, uh, into Egypt. So in the middle of Joseph's story, we have an interruption and that interruption is Genesis 38 and what it does is it brings Judah into the spotlight. So if you don't know who Judah is, Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. He's Joseph's brother, older brother. And of course, 12 brothers, quite a lot of people there. But this one specifically, Judah, there's a lot of importance on him. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But it brings Judah into the mix. And he has a very broken family and broken spiritual life. In this story, what's happening is Judah, he goes off and he marries a Canaanite woman. So Canaanite woman, not exactly what God wanted. He wanted them to stick to women in the area. And he went, he goes off and he marries a Canaanite. Okay. And then he has children. And then his first son is named Ur, E-R, she, he goes off and marries another Canaanite woman. This woman is of particular importance. Her name is Tamar. Now, Tamar and Ur, they're in this relationship, but all we know about Ur is he does evil in the sight of the Lord, and then God kills him. We don't know what specifically that he did, but we know that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. God was not happy about that. And God kills him. I'm going to open up the text here and see exactly what it says so that I can share that with you. Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And so in that time, now that Tamar's husband has just died, she's a widow. She would have nothing left for her. She's got no money, no support, absolutely nothing. So at that time, the custom was another brother would marry Tamar and fulfill the duty of the old husband so that his name would be carried on and that also Tamar wouldn't be left alone, uh, helpless, and with no one to support her. So Judah says to his second son, Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, Onan, he essentially also does evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And this is a, a tricky text here. It says, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give the offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So we're not going to spend too much time here right now. We're going to touch upon this later. But for now, I'm just going to continue through the story just to give you a summary of what's happening. So Tamar, Ur, her first husband, dies. Onan comes in, has sex with her, but does not want to have the kid. And so he doesn't do what he's supposed to. And the Lord doesn't like that. God puts him to death as well. Now, Judah only has one son left at this point. The son's name is Shelah, and he's a kid. So he tells Tamar, listen, wait a little bit. When the kid grows up, I'll give him to you, and he'll fulfill his duty as a brother-in-law. And so what's interesting is Tamar actually does listen. Instead of going back to her father's house, she decides to trust Judah, and wait until Sheila grows up. But when Sheila does grow up, Judah didn't give her or give him to Tamar. Instead, he just didn't do anything. He didn't stay true to his word. Now, Judah's wife just dies. Um, we don't know much about her, but we know that she died. And very, very, very soon after she dies, Judah goes up and he goes to meet his friend. Tamar knew about this. And so what she decided to do is to go and disguise herself as a prostitute. Judah sees this prostitute, decides, you know what, might as well. And he pays her. He does the deed, but he doesn't know who she is because she was disguised. And he tells her he's going to come back and pay her the rest tomorrow. When he came back, she's gone. He asks his friend, where's the cult prostitute? And he's like, there is none. I don't know what you're talking about. And Judah didn't really have any second thoughts about it. He's like, okay, if she doesn't want to get paid, she doesn't want to get paid. And he goes off and does his own thing. Finally, a few months later, they discover that Tamar is pregnant. When Judah hears of this, he insists that, what does he say? Verse 24, they tell him that Tamar is pregnant. Judah says, bring her out and let her be burned. So he insists that she is burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. So something to know is that he didn't pay her in coins and money like we do today. He gave her something that belonged to him, specifically the signet, the cord, and the staff. Judah identified them and said, and this is really important, Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Now, after this, they don't burn her, but what does end up happening is he realizes he's wrong, says she's more righteous, and then finally Tamar has two children, 
one named Perez and one named Zirah, twins. All right, that was a summary. This is a rough, rough chapter in, in the Bible. And again, especially with the areas where semen is wasted on the ground and, and Judah's having, having prostitute sex with his daughter-in-law. It's really rough. And at first, we don't know how to approach this. So let's start with this. How does this chapter fit into its context? Well, first of all, in Genesis and looking at most of the Old Testament, we constantly see that God's ideal for marriage life is not honored. Marriage life between a man and a woman, one man and one woman, not many concubines and many wives. That's not what God wants. In Genesis 1, or is it 2, it says, He made the man and woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus later said, What God has joined together, let not man separate. So we constantly see that this ideal that God has joined together is not honored. And throughout these times, people are seeking cult prostitutes, multiplying their concubines, having illegitimate children, children with their sisters, brothers, family members, parents. Within the context of the entire Bible, this is really interesting, we actually see in Matthew 1 verse 3, let me pull that up for us, that these circumstances are listed there. Matthew 1 verse 3, it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and it keeps on going until we get to Jesus. So Perez and Zerah are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, of the lineage of the Savior. So God used this really strange and off-putting circumstance to bring about his everlasting plan. Okay, let's ask another question. Why is this chapter here? If you're looking at it, it interrupts the story about Joseph. Just the chapter before and most of the section before, we have Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. And afterwards, we got Joseph, 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 Joseph. So why does the author Moses put the story here? So... The narrator decides to interrupt the captivating story of Joseph with this twisted, strange story, because ultimately, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that the line of Judah and Judah's descendants is where the Bible shifts to after Genesis and where the Bible focuses its perspective on. We see the line of David uh, come to power and all of his descendants. We see two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. And finally, we see that through the line of Judah, it is where Jesus comes from. And it's not through the line of Joseph. So in a way, the author actually put this story here and meticulously placed it to show us that Genesis and the rest of the Bible are shifting. They're shifting away from Joseph and Joseph's descendants towards Judah and Judah's descendants. And what's really interesting is in Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing most of his children, 
he he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Wow. That is a direct prophecy showing that everything prophesied about, about the Messiah is coming into the line of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's talking about Jesus. Until tribute comes to him, the ruler's staff from between his feet. Judah is a lion's cub. His brother shall praise him. So Genesis 38 is meticulously placed here to show that we're moving away from the line of Joseph and everything Joseph's done to the Messiah and to the line of Judah. Okay, now let's get into a little bit more questioning what the heck this chapter is about. What does this passage have to say about God? Well, ultimately, throughout the bizarre circumstances of the chapter, I think that, in fact, this chapter is showing us God's righteousness. We're seeing a man, Judah, who has strayed so far from God and everything God plans for him. We also see how God allows himself to be put in difficult circumstances and allows those circumstances to play out and the consequences to play out and ultimately bring him back to God. At the end of the chapter, we see Judah's beginning steps of transformation we see him proclaim, she is more righteous than I. That's the beginning of his transformation. That's the spark. And later in Genesis, we see a completely changed man. If Judah was the same person he was when, when Jacob gave this prophecy in, in Genesis 49, I don't think he'd be, he'd be worthy to get such an amazing prophecy. But God used those circumstances to change him. So ultimately, this is showing God's redemption, even for the worst of us, in the strangest of circumstances, God is able to redeem. Judah was a wicked, twisted man at the beginning of the chapter. And we see him change into a man who later in Genesis is willing to take the place of his brother Benjamin instead of instead of give him away and sell him out like he did with Joseph we see him as a completely changed man that's what it says about god that he uses our circumstances no matter how bizarre how low how terrible or disgusting they are and he is even able to use that and bring us back to him making light out of the darkness so, how can we apply this strange, bizarre story today? 
how how does it fit into our lives today? That is the million dollar question. How can we apply this passage of incest, deception, wickedness to our lives today? Well, to do that, I want to go back and I want to look at what this passage just told us about God. Like we just mentioned, it shows us how God uses unlikely circumstances and even the consequences of our sin to bring him back to to bring us back to him and for his will to be done. Just like God used Judah's ridiculous circumstance. It's absolutely ridiculous. But that circumstance was what began his transformation and his redemption. And sometimes God uses circumstances like that in our own lives. I don't know if you've had any. For example, it might be a health problem. You might have had a stroke or a heart attack or diabetes. Or it might be a financial problem where you're not able to pay off your bills or your mortgage. But he uses circumstances like that to begin or even continue our transformation and bring us back to him. To remove our connection and attachment to this world and to secure our attachment onto him. And ultimately, it's to glorify himself and to let his will be done through our ridiculous circumstances. I think ultimately, what we can see within this passage is the turning point in Judah's life. If you remember my last episode, I talked about my testimony. I talked about the low points in my life where I was addicted to alcohol weed, porn. I was empty, had no purpose, had no calling, was depressed, was anxious, had OCD. My thoughts were driving me crazy. And yet, God used all of that to build me up and to bring me back to him. You know, I think that's exactly what we see here in Judah's life. God used the lowest point in his life, where both his children died, where he grew up, his wife died. He went and and had sex with a prostitute. This prostitute ended up being his daughter-in-law, who both his sons already had sex with. If that's not the lowest point in his life, I don't know what is, but God used that to build his character, to turn him from the wicked ways that he was in and bring Judah back to God. If that doesn't speak hope to you, then I don't know what does. Odds are, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a Christian. And you may have someone in your own life who has fallen so far away from God or is completely avoidant of God. I have friends, family members in my own life who hate thinking about the church and God, who have fallen so deep into their sin. And I pray for them. Maybe for you, it's a sibling. Maybe it's a friend. It might even be your own children. Let this passage give you hope that God can use any circumstance and any consequences of people's sins to bring someone back to him. And what's even better is he often uses the lowest points in our lives as turning points.
We saw that with Judah. I have seen it in my own life and countless other people's lives. And as we continue bringing guest speakers onto the podcast, this is going to be a theme that you're often going to be seeing. God allows us to fall so deep into our sin. Yeah, it sounds weird, but he allows us to fall deep into our sin. And then when we are in that sin, he uses the consequences as a turning point to bring us back to him. I think that these turning points in our lives are something that we can see God's grace in. I have, I've even found that, you know, with my own clients, a lot of the people who choose to work with me, who choose to invest in their health and their wellness and their fitness, their nutrition, they're often at a very low point in their own health before they make a decision to change their ways and improve their health. Maybe it is a health scare, or maybe it is that they have gone to the doctor and they've developed, uh, been diagnosed with a disease. That's their turning point for their health and fitness. There's a quote by Alexander Dumas in his book, The Count of Monte Cristo. The quote says, There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is only the comparison of one state with another. Nothing more. He who has felt the deepest grief is best able to experience supreme happiness. God, in his goodness, uses these low points in our lives as invitations to experience his supreme joy, grace, and love that he offers. And to allow us to compare with the empty uselessness of the pleasures of this world with the fulfilling purpose and grace that God has set for us. Romans 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we don't see that the sufferings in Judah's life produced character and hope, if you don't see that in your own life, then you need to pray and ask God to open your eyes. Because truly, he allows our suffering to produce endurance, our endurance to produce character and character to produce hope. If you feel like you or someone you know has been approaching this turning point in your life, I encourage you to pray and ask God to help shine his grace upon them and open the door towards that turning point. Open the door towards his grace. To end off with this strange but hopeful chapter, I'd like to share a good dad joke with you all. Did you know that Jesus actually drove a Honda? That's right, he drove a Honda, but he didn't talk about it. In John 12, 49, Jesus says, I have not spoken of my own accord. He drove the 2021 Honda Accord. (laughs) 
I hope you all have a fantastic day and catch us next time to hear about Krista Baker's amazing testimony. Krista Baker is my mentor, my business mentor, and she's going to be on the podcast talking about her own testimony. Looking forward to it. God bless you all and farewell. Farewell.